never, never lets go. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. And for the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 5. You know, as we come to Hebrews chapter 5, we find the Word of God developing something that has been introduced a couple of times here in the book of Hebrews, and that's the idea of a high priest. We saw the idea introduced earlier in the book of Hebrews, and then the closing part of chapter 4 talks about how Jesus Christ is the great high priest, and it shares with us his ministry for us. How he goes to God the Father and speaks on our behalf. How he understands our weakness. And in light of that understanding, since he was tempted in every way and yet without sin, he's able to sympathize with us as we struggle and as we sin. So as we come to the fifth chapter, the fifth chapter of Hebrews develops this idea of Jesus being the high priest. And it shares with us this fact, that because Jesus Christ is the great high priest, we have no need of any other priest. He alone serves our needs because he does so with perfection. Now, introducing this idea, we come to the fifth chapter that first talks about the human high priests. And it gives us a quick blow-by of how they were selected, what they did, and what their purpose was. And here's what we need to understand. God didn't just randomly come up with this idea, hey, I'm going to have high priests, just to perpetuate a religious system. That's not why God came up with high priests. High priests and priests in general in the Old Testament were actually a foreshadowing, a picture of one who would come to fulfill this for all time, for all people who would turn to God. They were a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that all of those laws, all of those things that we read through the Old Testament, the parts that when we read through the Bible in the year, we read by as fast as we can, they had a purpose. And their purpose was to picture for us Jesus Christ. So let's bear that in mind as we come to this. And let's understand that Jesus Christ is the ultimate go-between between us and God. Now first, let's look at the service of human high priests. When we look in the Scripture, the book of Hebrews begins sharing with us the idea of high priests having a ministry and how they came in to serve in this office. And it starts to talk about this service of the human high priests and the fact that they were selected from among the people by God the Father. And these are some important points. So let's look at this first verse. Every high priest is selected from among men as appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, first we need to understand this. The human high priests were never selected by men. They were selected by God. And that's important for us to understand. Why? Think of this. Had God said, choose from yourselves a high priest, what would it have become? A total political office, right? 
It would have been something where people would have seen this as a place of power, a place of prestige. So I've got to have the title high priest. And you would have seen more corruption than came in through other means. Uh, you would have seen difficulty. You would have seen pettiness. You would have seen arguing. There would have been a terrible scenario had God not selected the high priest. Now, this had a particular interest to those who were in the first century, and here's why. You know what happened by the time the first century rolled around after hundreds of years of high priests that God had put into place? It had degenerated. And it was no longer a situation where God was choosing the high priest. Now they had human high priests who were chosen by humans. As a matter of fact, by the time the book of Hebrews rolled around, you know what had happened? The Romans actually selected who the high priest would be. And they put puppet high priests in place that would be sympathetic to Rome. So what the writer of Hebrews said to those in the first century has particular interest. It's not man who chooses the high priest, it's God. And I believe that he shares this with us because he wanted us to understand that there would be an ultimate high priest chosen by God and that person would be Jesus Christ. Look at what else this first verse says. The high priest is selected from among men. It was important that the high priest be a part of the community of Israel. And here's why. He was the go-between between Israel and God. So if he's going to represent Israel, he had to be an Israelite. He had to be somebody who could represent those people to God the Father. And this is important for us as a picture of Christ because it expresses to us why Jesus Christ, if he's going to be our high priest, the one who speaks on our behalf to God, that's why Jesus had to come and become one of us. That's why he had to add humanity to his deity. In order to be the ultimate go-between, Jesus had to be from among us, just as the high priests were from among the people of Israel. Now, the text goes on to talk about some of the responsibilities of the high priest. Notice it says, after he was selected from among men and was appointed to represent them in matters related to God, he offered and sacrificed for sins. These were some of the things that the high priest did. They had the responsibility of offering things to God. And really, when you look at the responsibilities of the high priest, those responsibilities definitely point to Christ. Take, for instance, their responsibilities with the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. First, he would offer a bull for his own sin and for the sin of the priesthood. That was number one. Before the high priest could carry out the function of continuing to minister in the temple and going into the holiest place of the temple, he had to have his sin taken care of. Next, they took two goats to be sacrificed from Israel. They would choose them, and then once they choose the two goats, guess what they did? They cast lots. One of the goats was slaughtered as a sacrifice, and then one of the goats was released as a scapegoat. You've heard the term scapegoat, right? This is where that term comes from. The idea is they would lay hands on this goat, send it out of Jerusalem out of the city into the desert and the idea was he was carrying their sins away. Now these animals didn't really accomplish anything, right? It was a picture 
of what would happen ultimately with Jesus Christ. The animal sacrificed covered the sin of Israel on an annual basis, but it wouldn't really be taken care of until Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross. You could view it this way. Their sins were sort of put on hold until the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, could pay for it. Now, why would I say that? How do I know that? Book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it says this. God presented him, it's referring to Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, remember, what we were talking about moments ago, the day of atonement. Atonement very simply means the time where we are at one with God, the place where we are made right with God. That's the idea of atonement. So, Jesus Christ was this ultimate sacrifice of atonement, and we benefit from his sacrifice through faith in what his blood shed on the cross accomplishes for us. Then the text goes on to say this. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You know what he's saying? All of those sins that happened prior to the cross, prior to his crucifixion, they were just being held in check. They were covered by the sin of these sacrifices, but they weren't dealt with until the cross. The cross is the central part of Old Testament and New Testament. Because all of those sins committed by Old Testament saints, all of the people who died before Jesus came and died on the cross, they were dealt with on the cross. So that's why Jesus and his crucifixion, the blood that he shed, is so central to the salvation of all men, Old Testament, New Testament. But then it goes on to say this, verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, in other words, right with God, and the one who justifies, the one who makes us right with God for those who have faith in Jesus. How do we have a relationship with God? Through faith in the sacrifice provided by Jesus Christ. So here's what we see. These priests doing all of these sacrifices, they were a foreshadowing, a picture of what Jesus would ultimately do by his sacrifice on the cross. One time at a family reunion, I remember we were sitting around this picnic table and we had a few in our family who didn't believe in the scripture or the truth of God's word. And one of them said, Rob, what's with Judaism and Christianity being so bloody? All of those animals that were sacrificed and then always talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. Here's what we find in regard to this blood. Blood is the life of that which has the blood, the animal or of Christ. When it's shed, it's the idea of the outpouring of life, which brings about death. Death is the penalty for sin. So these animals were paying the penalty for sin by bleeding to death as sacrifices, just as Christ was our sacrifice, paying our penalty for death when he received upon himself the penalty of the cross, our penalty for sin. He became our substitute. That's why he can make us right with God. That's why he can make us just. And here's what we need to understand. 
It's not human effort that makes us right with God. It is Christ's work on the cross and our faith in that work that makes us right with God. And that's what we need to understand. Think about this for a moment. In the Old Testament, you had sacrifice annually. When it was done by man's effort, it was never complete. They could never say, now my sin is dealt with for all time. But when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he took care of our sin forever. We can and should add nothing to what Jesus did for us. Where the priests would come and go, Jesus came and stayed because he lives forever and he serves forever as our high priest. But then we go on in the text. And as we come to verses 2 and 3, we find that these priests, although selected by God, although given responsibilities in regard to representing us to God, we find that these priests were subject to weakness and they had to sacrifice for their own sins. So let's look at what the second verse says. In speaking of the human high priest, it says, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now here's the idea. In the Old Testament, you would have a high priest and he knew what it was to struggle with sin because he struggled with sin himself. We know this because he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he offered that sacrifice for the sin of the people. So God's plan in having a priest was this, that he would be from among the people, understanding their challenges, understanding their struggles, so that he could better represent them to God. Suppose you had a holier-than-thou high priest that didn't see his own weakness, that viewed himself as so stellar and so above everyone else that he couldn't understand when people entered into sin. I wouldn't want that kind of person representing me before God or representing God to me because it would be difficult to function under that kind of person that looks down on you and looks at you and says, you're, you're awful, you're a wicked sinner, terrible, get out of here, you know, browbeating you for everything that you do. No sensitivity, no understanding that we fail and that we find weakness because he himself fails and has weakness. See, a truly godly person recognizes that. There's no place in the church or in the Old Testament for holier-than-thou people. We shouldn't look down on others. We shouldn't browbeat them. We should understand that we live in a fallen world and that fallen people do fallen things. This is what the high priest recognized because he himself was subject to weakness. He wouldn't be harsh on the people who were ignorant and who were going astray because he himself was subject to weakness. Now, this makes us think of what happened with Jesus Christ that we saw right in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Remember when it said that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness because he was one of us? He understands when we fall, when we fail, when we sin. 
That doesn't mean that he gives us a pass and says, well, they're weak, so they're going to sin. Oh, well, sin's not really important. What it does mean is this, though. We have a place where we can turn when we seek to repent, when we seek forgiveness for that sin, and when we seek to live in righteousness, and that's Jesus. Because he was tempted in every way, he understands what it is to struggle with sin, and he understands how hard it is to face it day in, day out, when you're tired, when you're needy, when you have all of those things that are going to lead you to sin. Jesus understands that because he faced it himself. That's very much like the high priests who had that responsibility as well. But then look at verse 3. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Verse 3 points out that the human high priest had the responsibility of dealing with sin. Again, they didn't see someone sin and say, well, I know you're weak, you struggle with that, and I struggle with it too. They understood that sacrifice had to still be made to deal with the sin. You don't look the other way when it comes to sin. You look at it straight on, but you deal with it. And I believe that's the message that we find in Christ Jesus as well. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die on the cross so that we would no longer even think about sin and never worry about the idea of sinning again. We just live the way we want to live. We do what we want to do. You know, it was interesting. I talked with a woman in my office this week who was a little interested in some of the things that were, uh, the Bible had to say about sin and about salvation, and she was from the community. And as we were talking, she said she had talked with a neighbor who lived across the street and that this woman professed to be a Christian, someone who read the Bible. And the woman told her this. Well, once you receive Jesus as your Savior, you just live the way you want to live because you're going to heaven. Sin really doesn't matter. Do what you want to do. Live the way you want to live. Your ticket's punched. You're going to get there. Don't worry about it. Now, that's a perversion of what the Scripture teaches. You see, the Scripture teaches when we trust Christ as our Savior that we are a new creation in Christ. The old things pass away, the new things come. The Scripture teaches us that belief causes change in a person. You don't work to earn your salvation, but works are the result of salvation. In other words, God does something in your life to transform you. He will produce good things in you. You don't do those good things so that God will look at you with favor and say, hey, your good things outweigh your bad things, so I'll accept you. You do the good things out of appreciation for what Christ did for you. And it's the work of God in your heart and your life to transform you in this way. The high priests understood that sacrifice was required for sin, and certainly Jesus understood that. When you read through the Gospels, as you come to the close of each Gospel, as Christ is approaching the cross, he talks about how he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He talks about the cross, the crucifixion, how he needed to go to the cross to deal with sin. And that's what we need to understand. That was the picture that God wanted us to see when we look in the Old Testament at these high priests. One other consideration when it comes to the high priests. Verse 4. 
The high priests submitted to the call of God. Verse 4 says this, No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. As I said earlier, you don't just walk in someday and your mom asks you, hey, what do you want to do for a living? And you say, I want to be a high priest. Didn't work that way. God had to appoint you. God had to set you aside as the person. It had to be assigned by him. So it was never to be something that a human being would aspire to, but it was something that God would install. And certainly, we see that God installed Christ as the ultimate high priest. The scripture talks about how the Father sent the Son into this world. How he went at the direction of the Father. All of that is something that we see pictured for us as far as Jesus Christ. He is God's appointed sacrifice and his appointed priest who speaks for us on our behalf before the Father. That's how it parallels what God did in choosing the high priests that were human high priests. But then the text goes on. And after talking about the human high priests, it shifts. And at verse 5, it begins to talk about Christ. He is the supreme high priest, our own Lord Jesus Christ. And we see first this idea that is introduced in verse 4. It's, it's completed in verse 5 where it says, He was sent by the Father into this world. It says, So also Christ did not take upon Himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to Him, You are My Son. Today I have become your Father. God appointed Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, we're told in Scripture, to come into this world to die for us on the cross to be our priest, representing us to God and God to us, to be our mediator. This was something that God expressed so clearly. And now, some of us kind of get bogged down in this. We look at it and say, now wait a minute, God is one, and yet you have God the Father sending God the Son, and then later in the Gospels it says God the Son would send the Holy Spirit when he went back to the Father. And if God is one, how does this work? It works by the Trinity. God is three persons, and yet one God. And various illustrations have been given to try and help us understand this. For instance, H2O, water, ice, liquid, vapor. All of the illustrations break down, and you know why? Because God is transcendent. And what we mean by transcendent is this. God is far beyond, far above anything that we can grasp or see in our own realm, in our own life, and in the light of those things around us. God exceeds them all. The Scripture teaches us that there are three distinct persons, first person, second person, third person of the Trinity, and that yet those three persons are one. And to take it beyond that, is to start to dabble in things that God hasn't revealed. Our responsibility, trust the revelation of God. Build our understanding on Him rather than human reason. God's responsibility, reveal what He wants us to know. And that's what He's revealed about the Trinity. So, what do we have? We have God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, 
sending God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And God had assigned this ministry of being high priest to the Son. That's why right at the end of that fifth verse, it quotes a passage from the second Psalm. You are my Son, today I have become your Father. As we've seen earlier in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 5, if you'll remember, this same passage was quoted, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. The idea is this, not that the father and son just at one point came into a position to where the son was created or became son or something of that nature. What we see is this, son is a title of the incarnation. What I mean by that is this, son communicates the relationship between the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And just as a Son submits to the will of the Father, so in the Trinity, the Son submits to the will of the first person, God the Father. And when Jesus came into this world, took upon himself human flesh, he completed God's will in sending him to live among us and to die for us. That was the completion of this role where Jesus set aside independent use of all of his divine attributes to become one of us and accepted for himself humanity and set aside the ability to do all the things that he could do as God to be one of us. Jesus becoming son is the expression of saying he fully experienced what God had intended for him as being sent and as far as being one of us as well. So the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that this acceptance of coming to this world, living among us, and then making us right with God was a part of that role. Colossians says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Do you catch that? It was in Jesus Christ that everything was reconciled, brought to its right place with God the Father. So he reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There we see that concept again. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that things are put in their proper place with God. Now, I want you to think about what that means for a moment. God sending the Son into this world not only makes believers right with God, but those who reject the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ, it condemns them because they seek to reject what God provided. It sets creation in its proper place. It sets all things, whether earth or heaven, in its right place. That's what the scripture reveals about Jesus Christ. But then we go on to the sixth verse. And then it says this. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now when we come to this part of the passage, this is a quote for the 110th Psalm. And we're introduced to a character that we're going to see much more about in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek. He's mentioned here, and he's mentioned in the 10th verse. The 10th verse goes on to say this. 
He is designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the question is, who is Melchizedek? Let me give you a brief history. Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis. And Abraham had gone to war, had received the possessions of those that he conquered, and he brought back those possessions and gave one-tenth of those possessions to this figure that's introduced in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. Not much more is said about him until we come to other passages a little bit later that explain who he is. We're going to develop that much more, but here's the idea. He was identified in the book of Genesis as a priest and a king. And that's a picture of Christ's role in his ministry. He is priest in that he's the go-between between us and God, but he's also king in the sense that he has a kingdom. And we look forward to the fulfillment of that kingdom. That's the idea. So he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek as priest-king. And we'll see much more as we get into that. Now let's go on with this text and not get bogged down in Melchizedek right now. And let's look at what else the scripture says. When we come to the seventh verse, the seventh verse talks about how our Lord submitted to the will of the Father completely. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Now, often when we come to some passages in the book of Hebrews, we find some difficult phraseology. And so we want to break this down and understand what this passage of Scripture is talking about. First, it's talking about the time of Jesus' life here on earth, from the time of the manger till the time of the resurrection and ascension. And what it says about Jesus is this. He offered up prayers and petitions and loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus was a man of prayer. What do you find? Over and over and over again, Jesus would go to prayer. Often early in the morning when his disciples were still on the rack, where's Jesus? He's off somewhere praying. When the disciples wanted to find him, what did they do? They had to hunt for him. They had to find him because he's off somewhere praying. Jesus prayed consistently. And what did he pray about? This passage gives us some insight. He offered prayers, petitions with loud cries, and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was praying to the Father about the cross. Now, why would Jesus be so focused on the cross? Think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ was absolutely, completely sinless. In going to the cross, he would take upon himself all of the wretched, horrible, Wicked things that mankind does. Can you imagine looking at what Jesus had to take upon himself on the cross, the way he had to prepare himself? Just one evening of watching the news and seeing the wickedness that man is capable of when you watch it, on a consistent basis, even more deplorable, but think about all of human history 
all of that sin laid upon Jesus Christ. He prayed with tears, with groaning about your sin and my sin and the sin of others that would be laid upon him. That's the insight that we have here in the seventh verse. But then these unusual words, to the one who could save him from death. Now, what's the scripture talking about? Did Jesus need saved? Not saved in the sense that we need salvation because of our sin. But here's the idea. God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we need to recognize is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a testimony to everyone that he had vanquished sin and death on the cross. Had there been sin that was not dealt with, God would not have raised him from the dead. But God did raise the Son from the dead. It's expressed over and over and over again in Scripture. And what the Scripture is telling us here is that this is the one that he was praying to, the one who would resurrect him. And God heard his prayer because of his reverent submission. Jesus' obedience to the Father meant that he never sinned. He reverently submitted to the will of the Father, even if it meant going to the cross. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Then look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus was raised but he humbled himself to death. God exalted him to the highest place possible. Gave him a name that's above every name. But first there was the cross and the resurrection. When Jesus prayed to the one who would raise him from the dead and demonstrated his obedience, he was demonstrating what it is to be the supreme high priest. And that brings us to our last point. He is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Now look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now again, if we look at this and we read between the lines, we could say, well, Jesus learned obedience. Does that mean he was disobedient at some point? No, because if he were disobedient, that would have been sin. The idea of learning obedience is this. When Jesus accepted humanity... He accepted its limitations. As human beings, we learn, we grow, right? So when Jesus Christ accepted the call of God to come and be our high priest, he accepted also the limitations of being a man. And so as he lived life and suffered, he learned obedience experientially, something that just God doesn't do because God already knows everything. But by accepting humanity and laying aside being God in the sense that he exercised those attributes of God, still remaining God, he learned what it was 
to be obedient to the Father. And then look at verse 9. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now once again, there are those who will take this verse and twist it and say, Jesus was made perfect? Well, that means he was imperfect at some point. Let me explain this. Verse 9, when it talks about him being made perfect, the word perfect is better translated complete. And here's the idea. Until Jesus went to the cross, he could not complete the will that the Father had for him here on earth. Had he stopped short of the cross, he would not have been perfect, complete, in the mission that God sent him to do, to die on the cross for our sin that we might be forgiven. It was the completed work of Christ on the cross that brings us our salvation. And then this last part of the passage, again, is confusing to some. It says, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Let me explain this. Your obedience does not lead to your salvation. Your obedience is the result of your salvation. And let me explain why. If I say that I believe in something and don't act on it, do I really believe? For instance, if I believe that I have to get in my car and drive from point A to point B in order to be safe, I'm not going to look and say, well, you know, I really should uh, jump in the car and go from point A to point B to be safe. I really should, but I'm pretty comfortable right where I am, so I'm just going to stay here. What happens? I'm no longer safe. I might say that I believe it, but if I haven't acted on it, has it really done anything? What I believe the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is the kind of faith that we need to find salvation, deliverance from our sin, and to have a relationship with God the Father. True belief leads to obedience. And any belief that is short of obedience isn't really the kind of belief that God talks about in his word. James said this. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. Okay, pause there for just a moment. How does someone show that they have faith in something without acting on it? It's impossible, right? We can all talk a good game, but if it in no way affects my life, I live like those around me, do I really have faith? Have I really trusted God? My obedience demonstrates the work of God in my life. Now, this is for us to evaluate ourselves, okay? Not so you can look across the room and say, <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, this person over here sure doesn't show the obedience. You know, that's not the purpose, okay? The purpose is for us to evaluate ourselves. Have I seen the work of God in my life demonstrated by obedience to what he says? Bearing in mind that we're all going to fail, we're all going to have those lapses, understand that's in the text. But do I totally disregard what God's word says? Does it have no relevance or importance to me whatsoever? If I am that kind of disobedient person, then I need to question, 
Have I come to the place to where I've trusted Christ as my Savior? John gave us this statement. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. We can claim whatever we want to claim, but do our actions back up the claim? It is faith that brings us into a relationship with God, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. But that faith in Him will demonstrate itself through obedience as God does His work in us. So let me encourage you. Think about the high priest that you and I have, Jesus Christ. Understand that our Lord Jesus Christ shed His blood for us was not only the high priest, but also the sacrifice for us. All of those pictures in the Old Testament of the need for sin to be dealt with were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. And He serves now as our high priest. We don't need another priest. We don't need anyone else to speak on our behalf. We have Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, the completed high priest. So as I trust in Him, I find salvation. The moment I believe that His death on the cross paid for my sin, I am right with God. But here's what I must realize. The kind of faith that it takes to trust in Jesus Christ is a kind of faith that trusts that His death on the cross fulfills my obligation before God completely. It's not what I do. And I'm willing to have him transform me, change me, and make me the kind of person that he wants me to be. I am obedient to what he has said. There's an important relationship there that we have to understand. I encourage you this morning. Don't think about the person next to you or across the room. Think about you. Where are you? in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Has he been someone that kind of occupies a place in your weekly schedule to pop into church when convenient? Somebody that you might talk to when you get in trouble? But really there's not much relevance as far as him in your life for the rest of the time that you have. You sort of do what you feel like doing and don't really consider him. If that's the case, you're neglecting a great salvation. Or perhaps you've never truly committed your heart or your life to Jesus Christ. I encourage you this morning, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, and He's telling you that you need to pause and give thought to where your relationship with God is, don't put it off. Understand your need and act on it because that's what faith and belief do. Perhaps you know this morning that you've never committed your life to Christ. You've never embraced Him as Savior. At the close of the service, I'll be at the back door there are others who will be around the church who are leaders in the church. Ian would be happy to talk with you, our worship leader. 
um, Burt Rice, who was up here leading worship, um, Wayne over here in this fancy striped shirt, be glad to talk with you. Come and talk to one of us. Pastor Stuck would certainly be happy to talk with you. We'd be very happy to speak with you about how you can know where you stand in your relationship with God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Supreme High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has secured for us salvation for all time. And God, my prayer is this, that each person who has gathered here this morning, that, Lord, they would understand the importance of knowing him, coming through his blood, trusting what he provided as a sacrifice on the cross for them as their hope of salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.